Let us pray. Eternal God, showing forth infinite love through Christ, open our hearts and minds to the light of truth, that by grace and for the life of the world, we may live in union with the one who loves us. Amen. This text contains what may be the quintessential line of Christian evangelism. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. From car bumper stickers and license plates to prominent tattoos on athletes to the bottoms of Forever 21 shopping bags, this, this verse is it. Not only does this verse communicate our religious affiliation and our spiritually protected status based on our religious affiliation, but its all-encompassing scope also conveys a desire to compel others to get with the program, to get in the in crowd. At times, I have heard this verse used divisively to promote exclusion and condemnation based on the claims of the passage itself. It's hard to get around the statement, those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe in him are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only son of God. There doesn't seem to be any big hocus pocus mystical meaning behind that. It seems pretty straightforward. Those who are with the program are in and those who are not are out. But as someone raised in an interfaith household, I have never resonated with sentiments limiting God to that extent. And so whenever this reading came up in the lectionary or was zealously quoted to, dis to demean or dismiss the validity of other faiths, I have simply disregarded those claims as sectarianism, as the human inclination to want to split up into factions for the sake of determining who's going in the right direction. While I was exegeting, I messaged Anthony to convey how challenged I was by the condemning inclinations in the text, but also how grateful I am for the opportunity to engage a reading that can be difficult and will become even more difficult in the context of our pluralizing, secularizing, individualizing society. Unfortunately, what we find behind the text fits some of the exclusivist ways it can be used. While we are to consider that God's love is paramount in the passage, the wisdom of our faith, especially during Lent, also teaches us that growing in love requires that we acknowledge and repent of the ways that we have distorted reality, which includes our distortion of religious messaging. So the exact history behind John's gospel is relatively unclear, but it is likely that the Johannine community experienced deep conflict with the synagogue, probably because of the community's persistent tendency to equate the man Jesus with God, 
for John's writer, Jesus was not only the Messiah, the fulfillment of the scriptures, the son of man, the son of God. He was all of that and a bag of chips. He was all of that and the incarnation of the great I am spoken of in Hebrew scriptures. He was the living manifestation of God in the flesh, which would have been a startling, unsettling claim compared to the teachings of the synagogue. This passage, like others in John's gospel, may be read partly as a manifestation of this tension. Though the hypothesis that the Johannine community may have been outright excluded from the synagogue is contested, the author's antagonism towards Judaism is nevertheless strikingly incomparable among the gospels. You'll note the author's hostility towards Judaism voiced in upcoming lectionary readings where he repeatedly enlists the term the Jews to mark a clear distinction between the Christian worshiping community and its predecessor religion. It would be utterly negligent to overlook the ways this has been used historically to lay the foundations for Christian-led persecutions of other religions, namely Judaism. It could even be said that the seeds of atrocities like the Holocaust and the Inquisition were planted in the exploitation of these very verses that we are reading today. A clear witness to history challenges us to claim this and in response to assume more humble interpretations of our sacred texts. Doing that inspires us to get in the mind of the writer. And, and in doing so, we see that the Johannine community was asking the same questions uh, that serious followers of faith communities still ask. Who are we and who are we not in relation to others? Where's the boundary between our community and others? What distinguishes us and makes our way the way to go? Typically, we define ourselves in relation to who and what we are not. Adele Reinhardt's notes in the Jewish Annotated New Testament that the Gospel of John reflects a community in the process of self-definition. Indeed, John's witness is uncompromising and we may take a lesson from him in boldly proclaiming our faith if we ever find ourselves lackadaisical. We can identify with the author's desire to share something that is essentially good and life-changing and radically transforming. Let us also recognize that we can become so captivated with a good experience that we then want everyone else to have that experience. This desire in and of itself is not sinful. What is sinful is the harm that we inflict on others in attempts to coerce them into having that same experience, even at the threat of condemnation. When we resort to emotional, spiritual, mental manipulation to meet our religious ends, that distorts the goodness 
that we are deeply seeking to share with the world. So consider that we are not to understand our salvation as in-group favoritism, as we're in and those who aren't in are out. We're the best and everybody else is just the rest. Everybody else is just out there trying to make it. Everybody else is just woefully deceived. In-group favoritism inspires religious bigotry and warfare. In-group favoritism hinders communication across social barriers. In-group favoritism impedes our recognition of our ultimate oneness in God and in God's overwhelming, incomparable, and all-encompassing love for a world that is essentially good, which includes people who do not think like us. I posit that to accurately conceive salvation, we are to look first, not outside of ourselves at who's not saved, who's not in the boat, who's not on our team. We're not to look at judging who's in and who's out so much that we lose sight of the cross and the love that God unconditionally, universally showed for all at the cross. And that love is shown more than it is told. I cannot think of a greater demonstration of God's love in Christ as the love my mother showed me. My mother transitioned when I was six years old and there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of her. As I constructed this sermon, my eyes started to get a little watery thinking about how young and beautiful she was when she left this plane of earthly experience. I cannot imagine how painful it was for her to receive a breast cancer diagnosis at 42 years old. I cannot imagine how painful it was for her to be asked by her youngest child what that tattoo was on her forehead because he didn't know it was a mark from chemotherapy. I cannot imagine how painful it was for her to watch her hair fall out, for her to get blood clots and have seizures and be rushed to the emergency room. I, I cannot imagine, but I know how terribly sad it must have been, how terribly sad it was for all of us. It was terribly heartbreaking for her to know that she would have to leave her husband, her children, her family, and her job. She worked consistently for 27 years and, and to sit with that knowledge while she withered away before everyone's eyes. Death and sickness and pain and suffering hurt. They hurt like hell, but we know no greater love than from one who lays down their lives willingly for us. I remember my dad recalling how my mother called him home from work one day to tell him that the angels had come to her bedside and that she could come home now. And she went, she went, but she never left. She went to her next place for another purpose, but she never left us in spirit. She continued to walk with me and talk with me and appear to me in whispers and dreams it was almost 20 years later that I saw a sacrifice in her release, her giving herself over to the angels. I honestly cannot conceptualize my calling without factoring in my mother's transition. It's 
unfathomable for me. And in this way, it's hard to distinguish what God wills and destines from what God uses and purposes. In any case, I see that God has used her death for life. So that even in death, her life meant something. God has used her surrender to show me what faith really looks like. And I am ever grateful. I can never say that I have not seen God's love. I can never say that I haven't seen a true witness to faith. What does it look like for you? What is your story? What is the story that you know of someone who loved God so deeply that they gave their life? Maybe it's in Harriet Tubman's story whose last words were, I go to prepare a place for you. Maybe it's in Martin Luther King Jr. or Jonathan Daniels. Maybe it's in Perpetual Felicity or St. Moses the Black or Oscar Romero. Maybe it's simply in the lives of the everyday saints and heroes. Maybe you'll see in their story a witness to the truth that Jesus brought. When it dawns upon you, you'll say, there, there's Christ. There's Christ again, lifted up, shining for the light of the world. And when you see it, the task is then for you to pick up the mantle, for you to take on the inheritance. Now you do it. And when we do it, know that we're not doing it to get anything out of God. We're not doing anything to be saved. For God so loved the world that God gave. And because we love God, we give of ourselves. Because God so inexhaustibly loves us and, so, and is so irresistibly gracious towards us. We confess our faith not only with our lips, but in our lives. We commit our deeds to practically, man, practically manifesting God's work on earth, not to get God's love, for we have already been justified. We do what we do, how we do it, in natural response to God's love, in response to the love and grace God shows to us through Christ. We can't help but become living sacrifices ourselves. And there's the elixir. There's the balm in Gilead. There's the living water. Now go. Go show the world. Go show, go show, go show. Go show the love in Christ that lives in you. Amen.